If you want to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, you can. Uh, we won't be staying there long. We're going to be all over the place. Our main verse is actually in the book of Deuteronomy. You know, we have, we have so much to be thankful for. Obviously, Thursday was Thanksgiving, and we all got together, and nobody overindulged in turkey or pie, I'm sure. <coughs> um, yeah, but we, 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 at this time of year, we always think about gratitude. We think about thankfulness, and but it's something we should think about at all times. And even though many times we allow these moments of turmoil that we have in our lives to kind of move us away from our life that should be full of thanksgiving, we need to remember what we have to be thankful for. But how do we live a life of gratitude in a world that's full of trouble? Well, first we need to look at Colossians, Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17. This is what it says. It says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Well, there's, that's kind of difficult at times because we get distracted with the turmoil of the world. But we need to learn to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is how we are to live. Notice the importance of being thankful. And how many times it talks about be thankful, sing songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, thanking God in all that we do. There's a lot of, lot of thanks there. And we have a lot to thank God for. You know, back in, um, back in the Old Testament, the Israelites, this is a time when they were wandering in the desert. They had, been, they had been in slavery for, for, for all this time in Egypt, and God had done miraculous things and brought them out. He was leading them during the day with a pillar of, of cloud and at night by a pillar of fire. He was providing for them. They had so much to be thankful for. And in the midst of this, he speaks to them. Towards the end, he's speaking to them in Deuteronomy, talking to them, through Moses, of what has been happening these past years. And the first thing, we, first thing we should be thanking God for is His providence. It's a word that many in the church probably don't even have heard before or even know what it means, but if we look at Deuteronomy 2.7, I'm just going to read the first verse to begin with. We'll end up going through the whole verse, but the first part of the verse is for the Lord, your first sentence, the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. So Moses is talking to the Israelites. If you know anything about the Israelites, you know and understand that not everything they did was good. They struggled. They have. They continue to struggle. They complained a lot in the desert. They got, so they got water. They didn't have, and then they, they, they were hungry. So they got manna, which was bread. They got tired of the bread, so he sent them quail. They complained. They had a lot to be thankful, but they complained an awful lot. They struggled to follow Yahweh with all of their heart. But here Moses says that God has blessed all that they have done. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. All that they had done. It's like, well, wait a minute. Does that mean, if you're saying all, does that mean that God also blessed them and caused them to rebel? Well, of course not. 
See, the doctrine of providence is that God directs all things in the universe. Everything that happens does not happen unless God allows it or causes it to happen. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. In the physical world, we know He rules because in Matthew, Matthew 5.45 it says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So what happens in the clouds and in, 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 our, in our world with the rain, the snow, God does that. He rules that. In, in, in the nations he's ruling, in Psalm 66, 7 says, Who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. He's saying these nations who are rebellion, he's the one who allowed it to happen. And, and this means that God allowed Hamas to do what it did. And he's allowing Israel to do what it did is doing. He allows it. I'm not saying he causes it. That's not what he, and I'm not saying he condones it, meaning that he approves of what, he, what happens. But he allows it. He's ruling over the destiny of mankind. And Galatians 1.15 says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. This is Paul saying, God set me apart before I was even born for the task of being the prophet to the Gentiles. And the apostle to the Gentiles. He rules in our destinies. He rules in our failures and our successes. In Luke 1.52, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those to humble estate. He puts kings on the throne and He takes them off. And He's also ruling, He's also sovereign in the protection of His people. In Psalm 4.8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. Do you feel safe at home? We, 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 I know we lock our doors. Well, most people do in Ossian. Some people still don't. But we lock our doors. We, we, we have lights outside you know, that come on automatically if anything walks in your yard. And we feel safe. The only reason why we feel safe is because of God, because it is God who protects us in our homes. Because you could have the most security you could ever want. If, if, God, if God allows somebody to come in, they're going to come in. That's God's providence. So in other words, there's no such thing as luck, chance, or fate. God's will is accomplished through his divine providence. Now, I always get this question if I ever talk about this with somebody, if I'm having a conversation with somebody about God's providence, about his sovereign will over all things, they say, well, what about free will? How does that play into it? Well, understand that the interaction between divine providence and our free will is extremely difficult to understand. I still don't even understand. I've studied. I don't understand how it works. It's like explaining the Trinity. You cannot explain the Trinity. I'm sorry, an egg does not explain the Trinity because you have an oak, a shell, and an outer part. They're not all the same thing. You don't eat the shell, right? Well, you do if you're crazy, but you don't eat the shell. God is all. Jesus is all. They're all the same. They're three, but they're all one. 
There's really no metaphor that explains the Trinity. And it's very difficult to understand how free will and God's sovereignty works. So we, what we have to do, the best way to understand it is to look at it. Let's look at an example of it. And a great example of that is the story of Judas. Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. In God's sovereignty, he allowed Judas to deceive, to cheat, to lie, to steal, and to betray Jesus. He allowed it. He didn't cause it. He allowed it. There's a huge amount of wickedness in what Judas did. But God was not the author of this wickedness. But it did lead to a much greater good, which is the salvation of mankind. Understand this, that Judas, in his free will, stole, lied, betrayed, Jesus handed him over to the officials. But it was for good. It was for a great, it led to a greater good. In order for us to be saved from our sins, Jesus had to be handed over to the officials to be crucified. If Judas hadn't done that, if, if, if Judas was supposed to do it, he decided not to do it, then it wouldn't have happened. Possibly. God could have still made it happen. But it was meant to be that way. God allowed Judas the freedom to act in a wicked way, which was Judas's choice, so that the greater good could occur. This is what it says in Luke twenty-two, twenty-two. It says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Judas made the choice. That's free will. God's sovereignty, his, his, his providence is that Jesus would be betrayed and would be crucified and die for our sins. That's how they work together. Paul explains divine providence in Romans 8.28. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things means all things, good and bad. Now that's hard to deal with. I've had a lot of bad things in my life. And the only time I can really understand where they were to the good was after that I've gone through them. We always look back and we say, you know, if that hadn't happened, I would not be where I am today. That's what we figure out. I wouldn't be who I am today. Satan can act in ways that are the most wicked possible, but God's providence and perfect will happens in the end. That's what I think is always so hilarious when I think about what Satan does. Satan will do all kinds of things, thinking that he's outwitting God, and every time he plays right into God's hand. How frustrating would that be? Every time you think you're doing something that you're going to win, you play right into your adversary's hand. Because God's providence, his perfect will always wins, no matter what. The problems we have in our lives, the tribulations, the trials, are not problems at all. They are opportunities for our growth. Now, I can tell my kids that right now. They don't want to hear it. They don't like the problems they're having. And believe me, their problems are no big deal compared to adult problems. But after you start going through these problems in your life, you start to realize, yeah, they're not really problems. God grew me during that time. I changed. 
James says in James 1, 2 through 4, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How can we have joy in trials? Because we know there are opportunities for growth. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Thank you, Lord, for your providence in our lives. We also need to think about God's omniscience. Look again at Deuteronomy 2.7. The second sentence is, He knows you're going through this great wilderness. God knew they were in the wilderness. Not only did He know they were in the wilderness, He knew everything that was happening to them in, their, in the wilderness. God knows everything. Nothing occurs outside of His knowledge. We cannot hide from him. David says, when I go to the tops of the mountains, you are there. When I go to the depths of the seas, you are there. If I go to the ends of the universe, you are there. He knows the way of our lives. He knows everything there is to know about us. He sees our actions. He knows our thoughts even before we think them. And still loves us. Think about that. How many of us, if we knew everything about a person, if you knew every little detail about a person, their good, their good attributes and their really bad, their evil thoughts, they have every bad thing about them, would you still want to be around them? Would you be able to look at them with love and compassion? You know, we, we think that a spouse that you know each other, and you do know each other better than anybody, but I still believe there's parts of us, even with our spouses, that we don't reveal everything. I don't reveal to Beth every time I have a thought I shouldn't have. Now, if it's about her and I need to apologize, then yes, I, I do talk to her about it. But if it's a thought and I take it captive and I say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be having that thought. I don't, she doesn't know. She's got her own she's trying to deal with. I, I try to help her with her life, but I can't, if you really knew somebody, would you still want to be around them? God knows us. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And he loves us with compassion. Psalm 69.5 says, Oh God, you know my folly. You know, you know my foolishness. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. He knows the worst about us. And that should bring us comfort. Have you thought about that? God knows the worst thing you've ever done, and yet that should bring us comfort. Why? Because if he knows the worst I've done and the worst I'm going to do, and he's still here with me, I'm pretty lucky. There's no such thing as luck. I'm blessed. Okay? But see what we do? We, we have a tendency to think about it in terms of luck, but we're not. We're blessed. Because we have a God who knows us so well, and yet He still loves us. He wants to be with us for you forever. Not just for a short time, forever. We want, see, what's our, our normal response is we want to hide our dirty laundry, right? We, we don't want to have our laundry sitting out on the clothesline. I, 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 now, you know, usually the people anymore who do laundry outside are the Amish, and you think, would I want all my things hanging out there on the line? But see, would we want that in our lives? Would I want my dirty laundry? No, I don't. I hide it. But, but God sees it anyways. 
And he says, my child, I love you just as much as I did if you didn't do all those things. I love you. A real friend is someone who knows your worst and still loves you just the same. That's the kind of friend that Jesus is. He knows the worst that we have done or what we're ever going to do. And he knows the best that we've ever done and the best that we're going to do. He knows the good that we are able to do and the works in our lives. And he moves us to overcome our weaknesses so that we will do those good things. So that in our strength, we will be able to do them through Christ. The writer of Psalms says in Psalm 103, it says, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows, what that means is, he knows our body. He knows the weaknesses of our body. How does he know that? Because he was human in Christ. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to have pain. He knows what it's like to wake up and be frustrated in the morning because nobody will leave you alone. He would go off, he would go off to try to be alone, and his disciples were hunting him down. And you, can, you, can, you can't see the emotion, but you kind of get the sense that he was kind of frustrated with them at times. And what he says to them, he says, do you still not understand? I've been with you and you still don't understand? But then he would teach them again and again and again. He knows our frame. He knows our human frailties. He knows what we can bear and what we need to step in. When he needs to step in, he needs to lift us out of the muck and mire. He loves us so much. He wants us to supply all that we need to succeed. I'm sure that one time that when Jesus was getting ready to, to speak here, he's, that the disciples were struggling with some things. And he, he looked, in Matthew 6, 26, he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valued than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? That is a verse I always forget. Because I worry about some things. I get anxious about some things, and I'm like, I'm not adding to my life. In fact, guess what happens when we become too anxious? We are lessening our life. And I don't just mean lessening in length. I think lessening in quality. But if we can look at things and say, yeah, this, pardon me, really sucks. Usually I have to use that term up here, but this really sucks. This is terrible. It's awful. It's not a blessing. But if we can look at it and say, yes, it is. It's a blessing. He says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Thank you, Lord, for your omniscience. We also need to thank God for his purpose. Proverbs 19.20 says, Many are the plans in the mind of men, and oh, we have many plans. <laughs> That's my problem. I have so many plans, I can't execute them. But many are my plans. It says, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God has a purpose for all that happens to us. The Israelites, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Was it punishment? I, I think they probably thought it was, but the reality, no, it wasn't. Now, 
We could argue that they were for the the time length was because they refused to go and take the land when they were supposed to. But they needed to be in the desert. They needed to be trained. They needed to be taught. He had a greater purpose in mind. God was bringing them through the desert and he was teaching them to rely on him for all that they needed. Because you look, when they go to enter the promised land, he tells them how to do battle every single time. And what happens when they don't do what he tells them to do? They suffer. They took Jericho. Because why? They marched around it and blew trumpets and yelled. They marched around it quiet for days and days and days. And then the last day they blew a trumpet and they shouted and the walls came down and they slaughtered everyone. And then the next city they went to, they were told to do the same thing, to slaughter everyone, and they didn't. And they suffered for it. They were defeated. He was teaching them to rely on him. Deuteronomy 8.2 says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. See, there's the purpose. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And this is the amazing thing about that verse when I was thinking about it. We know they didn't keep his commandments. He says, I'm, I'm bringing you through the desert just to humble you so I can tell whether or not in your heart you're going to keep the commandments. He gets them through the desert and that he knows they're not going to. And what does he do? He still is with them as they go to take the promised land. Because he had a purpose behind it. Because he kept a promise to David. He kept a promise to Abraham, ultimately leading to David, who also he kept a promise to, which led to Christ. And you and I are in the same boat, so to speak. This world is nothing but a proving ground for us, a place for God to train us to trust Him wholeheartedly. That's, that's why sometimes when, when I look back at my, my trials that I have, I'm thinking, okay, what was God trying to teach me in this? Because apparently He tried it before and I didn't learn the lesson because I'm going through the same kind of thing again. That's why I always say we're stiff-necked people. We're still stiff-necked people, just like the Israelites. God has a purpose for each thorn bush, each deep river, each steep mountain that we have to climb in our lives. It, might not, it may not make sense at the time why we're having to do it, but in the end, God's proving us, molding us, changing us, testing us, teaching us, and leading us, building us up in the Lord. So we need to thank the Lord for His purpose. And in that, Talking about all the things that God does to, to train us, we have to thank Him for His patience. Aren't you glad that God is patient? I'm not very patient. I don't normally like to wait in a line. I don't, when we would go to amusement parks and there was a huge line for, I love roller coasters. I'm like, the line's too long. I'm not going to wait. When they started, when they started instituting the, the quick passes where you could schedule your time to ride, I love that. That was awesome because I didn't have to wait in line. If I'm waiting at a light, I'm, I'm, I'm zeroed in on that light. The minute that light turns green, it's time to go, and I'm ready to go. So I get antsy if I'm behind somebody and they haven't quickly left. I'm not usually sitting there because I'm not paying attention to anything else. I'm paying attention to that light so I can go. I don't, I'm impatient. I don't want to wait any longer than I have to. 
But unfortunately, sometimes this will bleed into other areas of my life, and I, I, I get impatient with those around me, and I'm glad that God is patient. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 86.15, because I'm many times impatient with God, it says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is patient with us. Why? Because he knows our frame. He knows our problems. He knows our frailties. Even when we return like a dog to its vomit, he's like, I understand. Now, come back to me. Every single time the Israelites rebelled, he punished them, and they came back. I was listening to a podcast this morning about Pharisees and, and, and where everything, how everything happened. It goes all the way back to you know, being ended up in slavery and coming out of slavery and in the desert having to wander and then, you know, having to deal with, they, it was a so, the same story all the time. They were faithful and then they were unfaithful. So God, they were unfaithful. God was a judge. A judge would, would lead them back to faithfulness and then they would be faithful for a while and then they would fall and, they, and then God would send another judge. It was back and forth constantly. Finally, they have David. We have a kingdom, but it doesn't last very long. And sooner or later, the whole nation splits. The northern kingdom becomes apostate in such a way that's terrible. The things that are happening, what King Ahab does is, is horrendous in Jezebel. And they're wiped off the map and taken off into the, all of the countries of Assyria, all the different nations that Assyria had conquered. And then Judas, not learning the lesson, ends up going into to captivity with Babylon. Comes back, but then still doesn't do what they're supposed to do. And we end up with... 400 years of silence after Malachi. And when we get back into the Bible, we have Israel as a nation again, but are they a sovereign nation? No, they're being ruled by Rome because they are unfaithful. And you start to see that Jesus interacting with the Pharisees is Jesus saying, you guys have been unfaithful and you're still unfaithful. But see, God is still patient. How many times will God forgive us? How many times will, if we fall into the same temptation, will he say, I forgive you? I don't want to tempt God's limits, that's for certain. But first, John tells us in 1 John, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know that if we come to him and we confess our sins, he will forgive us. It's an amazing promise. God will forgive us and cleanse us no matter what. If we confess our sins... If, if, we're going to stumble, God, if we're going to stumble, God provides a cleansing in Christ. Now, we know that Peter was wondering about the limit of forgiveness. In Matthew 18, he, and Peter says, And then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? He's like, how, how often do I need to forgive my brother? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times or 70 times, seven times. See, Peter thinks he's being generous. I'm going to forgive my brother seven times. On the eighth time, forget it. I'm done. Jesus says, no. No. He's challenging Peter's idea of grace because of the forgiving power and the infinite grace of God given to us by Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, we can always be made clean. This idea of seven, 77 times or 70 times seven, I know it's like 490, but that number is huge compared to seven. And what reality, what Jesus is saying, it's infinite. It's a number you really can't even fathom. Even for repeated sin, if we humbly seek God's 
forgiveness. He will forgive us. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. We also need to thank him for his omnipresence. Look at the next part of Deuteronomy 2.7. It says, These 40 years the Lord has, your God has been with you. God never left the Israelites in the desert. I'm sure there were times they felt like he was gone, but he was always there. Could you imagine what it would have been like for them if he hadn't been there? If he hadn't been protecting them? They probably never would have found the promised land. They would have died in the desert. And see, we too sometimes feel this distance between us and God. But that's usually not because God has left. The writer of Hebrews says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, the interesting thing is we sometimes think of omnipresence. We think that, we, we think that God is everywhere at one time. But see, I think about it in a different way. I think about it as more than just that. Yes, God is everywhere at one time, at all times. He's here now. He's here every second. He never leaves. He's here always. If you feel a distance, it's because you have left him, not he has left you. God will never leave us stranded alone in this life. He is with us in the good and the bad times. When we are facing trials and tribulations, we have an ever-present friend with us who has the ability to pull us out, if that is his will, or to help us through those trials. There's an amazing promise in, in Isaiah. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Thank you, Lord, for your omnipresence. We also need to thank him for his provision. We finally look at this last sentence in Deuteronomy 2.7. It says, you have lacked nothing. For 40 years in the deserts, God provided everything they needed. When they were thirsty, he gave them water. When they were hungry, he gave them manna. When they were tired of the manna and they complained about it, he gave them, he gave them meat. God supplied their needs. He was never early, he was never late, but he was always right on time. They learned to trust him, and God supplied it. David gives us this promise in Psalm 34. He says, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. God will supply all your needs, not your wants. He sometimes gives you your wants, and thank goodness he doesn't always supply all of our wants. Can you imagine how selfish and impetuous we would be if God provided everything we want? Have you seen, I know you haven't seen my kid's Christmas list. I, I, I shudder at times during this time of the year because they go on Amazon. It's, it's so terrible now. You go on Amazon, they start adding things to the list and it's my account. So I get notices on everything they're asking for. And, and believe me, we don't give them everything they ask for. But if we were given everything, we would be spoiled children. Everything we wanted. It'd be the worst thing that God could do for us to give us everything we want. Many times we want things we don't need. And many times we need things that we don't want. Let me say that again. 
Many times we want things that we don't need, and many times we need things that we don't want. In the end, though, we have lacked nothing that we need. Philippians 4.19, Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, when you and I give, whether we're giving to our kids or family, we give to the church, we're not giving according to our riches. We are giving out of our riches. Because God's riches are not, are not measured by dollar signs, but they're measured by Jesus Christ. If God loves us enough to give us Jesus, then we have all that we need. Romans, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? While we were still enemies of God, he died for us. He gave us the greatest gift we could ever get. How much more now that we are children of God? Thank you, Lord, for your provision. Are you thankful for what God has done for you? Then we need to live it. Live your life in gratitude and thankfulness for what Christ has done for you. And see, we can, we can do this by letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Letting his word dwell within us. And by doing everything we do and everything that we, we say, by the, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the church, I want to end with this in Ephesus. He told them, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks always, thanking God for all things, good and bad. Thanking Him for His grace and mercy. For giving us everything we need. For being everywhere we need Him to be. For knowing all caring about all. Loving us when we were unlovable. Let's pray.